This is Your Partners in Pain, a podcast that aims to bring together those who live with pain, healthcare providers who treat chronic pain, and researchers working on topics that affect people living with pain. This podcast is a must-listen for anyone experiencing pain or anyone trying to help those who live with it. Your Partners in Pain is presented by the Saskatchewan Pain Society, also known as SAS Pain, and I am your host, Alexandria. Each episode, we are going to speak to Saskatchewan-based healthcare providers and researchers who have information and education to share about pain science and pain care. We are also going to speak with everyday people as they share their incredible stories of living with pain and the techniques they've used to help manage it and live well. It is important to note that the information presented in this podcast represents the opinions of the host and the guests that appear on the show and not that of SAS Pain. The content presented should not be taken as direct health care advice, but for informational purposes only. Because each individual is unique, please consult your healthcare provider for any questions or concerns you have, or before you incorporate any of the ideas presented in this podcast into your own treatment plan. Today, we are speaking with social worker Jennifer King. Jennifer works at the University of Saskatchewan Chronic Pain Clinic, which is also called Mac IOPS, and has a private counseling practice at the Warman Physiotherapy and Wellness Clinic. Jennifer has previously worked in child and youth mental health, in acute care at numerous hospitals in Saskatoon, and the topic of pain is one that is very close to her. Jennifer has had personal experiences with pain, as well as family members living with pain. In this episode, she is going to tell us all about the role a social worker has in pain management, detail some of the mind strategies to help combat pain, and overall speak to the importance of trauma and a biopsychosocial approach while undertaking a pain journey. We hope you enjoy. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us today on Your Partners in Pain. I am so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And as I mentioned in the introduction, Jennifer is a social worker through the University of Saskatchewan at the MAC IOPS Clinic, which stands for Medication Assessment Center and Interprofessional Opioid Pain Service. Soon, though, it is going to be more simply called the USAS Chronic Pain Clinic. And maybe this service sounds totally unfamiliar to some of our listeners, but I know a lot of folks more informally refer to it just as a chronic pain clinic here in Saskatoon. But Jennifer, for those who don't know, can you explain what is MAC IOPS all about and what is your role there? Sure. Um, so MAC IOPS is um, um, funded through grants and it started off as a medication assessment program for opioid management um, through pharmacists. And as they were working, they realized that they really had wanted to build their team and provide people more um, interprofessional support when trying to reduce opioid use and when it came to pain management. So currently, for the last year, the MAC IOPS has been an interdisciplinary team that includes pharmacists, uh, physiotherapists, social workers, and a consulting um, physician. Now, there's only two full-time positions of each of these roles. And so it's pretty limited in how much time we actually have. And most of us work part-time in some capacity, but we um, 
do work together to support people who are experiencing chronic pain through medication, movement, and mind strategies. So we want to recognize for people that chronic pain management can be well managed through medication, but also movement and being able to do some good movement. And our mind has a really big impact on how we process pain and how we um, express pain. So our program does make recommendations, but it does not take on any prescribing of medications. And so we work with family physicians to make any changes with medications that might be happening. And we do accept referrals from uh, individuals themselves or from professionals. Um, A lot of our referrals come from doctors who are wanting support through medication changes. And so we do have a lot of that. And we do encourage even when people are individually referring themselves that they do have a physician that's supportive and um, available to work with our team. Uh, So as one of the social workers on the team, I am a part of the initial assessment where we meet with clients and hear their pain story. And by the end of that, it's about an hour and a half um, where we listen and ask questions and just get that history. And usually by the end, we decide, you know, who's going to be focusing on which aspect of the pain management we want to do. And that's based on who we're meeting with and what is most important to them. So we do um, uh, counseling, we do education, we make referrals to community programs, and we give a lot of pain strategies that are mind-based. can happen over several sessions. We usually say three to eight sessions is what most people find helpful. Uh, But we also offer a number of group education sessions for clients who are interested. So I think that in a nutshell, that's what we do. (laughs) Yeah, that is super fascinating and sounds like such a multifaceted service. And what I find interesting about this is that I had never heard of Mac IOPS until I started doing volunteer work with SAS Pain. And I'm surprised because I was a pain patient for years. And this sounds like an incredible service that can be really catered and individualized for each person, which is so important. So I'm going to make sure uh, before we end today that we all get the information for listeners on how to self-refer or how to get your health provider to get you there. But switching gears, Jennifer, I understand that your professional background is in social work. And I think that when most people think of a social worker, they're typically thinking of somebody who's going to assist with maybe mental health issues or a variety of other social concerns, maybe like housing or coordination of services in some way. I didn't realize that social workers could also be directly involved in pain management. So how did you end up specializing in pain through your practice? Was there any particular experiences that segued you into that area? Yeah, we can start there. Um, As a kid, I also had some experience in the healthcare system um, from probably kindergarten to grade two. And that left a really big impact on me. And it was interesting at that point, the social worker who was at the program that I was involved with was actually our neighbor across the street. And I was friends with her daughter. And then I also had some experiences where my grandparents uh, required hospitalizations or pain management. And that led us to working with social workers when I was in end of high school, university. And so those were two really big factors for me going into social work. and kind of pushed me, I, I don't know, pushed me, but moved me into that direction. Um, and just seeing that, you know, there's ways that we can step in and help people. 
um, when they're going through these crises. And so that's what kind of led me to that. Uh, while I was working in mental health back around 2007, uh, I started to read a book by Philip Yancey called The Gift of Pain, which kind of grabbed my attention. But he gives an account of Dr. Brand, who worked in India with leprosy patients. And leprosy takes away um, the feeling of pain in, in some sense, like there's damage to the nerves and other things. So people can't feel pain with leprosy. And that causes a lot of um, losses for them in so many ways. And it's, um, they don't even realize what's happening to their limbs because they don't have pain. So it really talked about how pain is a gift. And I think I really started at that point seeing mental health overlap with pain in a lot of ways. And that pain really does tell us something. Even when uh, someone is told that there is no reason for their pain, which we hear people say, um, I don't believe that. I really believe that your body is telling you something and that that pain exists um, in some part of your nervous system or in some part of your body. And so there's a lot of need to explore that and to dive into that. Uh, then after that, in 2015, I was with the Saskatchewan Bleeding Disorders Program. And it was there that I got connected with Dr. Susan Tupper. She was doing some pain work in our program to help us create um, a questionnaire for finding out, you know, who was experiencing pain and where and how we could support them. And I realized that, you know, there were all of these mind management strategies for the pain. And I said to her one day, I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing in pain management. <laughs> like you're, you're having me like our clinic is collecting this information and you're asking about these things, but I don't know what to do if someone says yes. And so she really encouraged me to start a research project and it was to find out what social workers knew across Canada in the bleeding disorder world about pain management. And Somehow it snowballed into doing a master project. Uh, so I did my master of science and my thesis was based on the social work understanding of pain management and bleeding disorders. And then as soon as I was finishing that and wrapping that project up, this um, position opened up at Mac IOPS and I started to focus um, my private counseling on pain management as well. Um, but if we go back to, you know, most individuals, you know, you talked to of, you know, or in the intro for this one, that social workers typically work with mental health issues or, you know, coordinating services. I think we do a lot of that in this work as well. There are times where people come in with pain and they don't have adequate housing or, you know, they don't know, you know, what supports are in their community and they don't feel safe, right? Because they don't have their basic needs being met. And so if we can do that, if we can support people in those things, then we can start doing some pain work as well once people are feeling like they have some of those other basic needs being met. So I think there's a crossover here and I think there's a place where we do that type of work and we're bringing something else as well. Absolutely. I agree for sure. And that is so cool about your own story about how you ended up where you are now. It's always interesting to hear that uh, care providers typically have had their own early experiences of either health conditions or pain with family members, and it really inspired them and stuck with them. And they end up in the roles that they are now. And I know Susan Tupper, who is our chair of the Sask Pain Society, 
she truly seems to have this magic ability of finding a way of getting everyone involved in pain research, which is very great. It's just one of her traits. And I'm going to make sure that we include that Philip Yancey book in our show notes as well, if anybody else wants to check that out, because it sounds like a fascinating read. But since social workers are trained to help facilitate and provide even counseling strategies that can help people, I was wondering if you could walk us through a couple of those. If I was a patient uh, with pain coming to Mac IOPS and I connect with a social worker like you, what are some of the specific things that I could expect you and I would maybe talk about or work on together? So this is a pretty new area for social workers and um, a lot of social workers don't really have that uh, training in pain management. And I'm hoping that that changes soon. I'm hoping that we can do something to help um, social workers just understand this more because pain is seen in every population of the people that we work with, right? And we know that the amount of um, how much chronic pain just impacts the general population. We're going to work with people who have chronic pain at some point in our career um, more than we think we are too. So I think that it is something that we need to develop more. There are a lot of um, studies, a lot of information on the mind piece of pain management. And so I think we're kind of ahead of the game that we do have a lot of support for this type of work. We just haven't really embraced it and brought it into the work that we're doing yet. And so we need to really start just accepting this um, practices. And so because pain is experienced in the same part of the brain that also processes stress and anxiety and depression, we know that all of those things have this bi-directional effect on each other. So the more stress I'm experiencing, it's pretty likely that I'm going to be experiencing um, a higher stress or higher pain levels as well. And, you know, if um, we know that increased pain can also increase depression and anxiety. And so if we can address all of these things together, we can have an impact on that and make some good um, movement with that, right? So in each of the situations that I meet with, I really do try and see what people are looking for and to meet them where they're at. Um, there's a lot of ideas that I have sometimes that I would love to try with people, but they're just not ready for it or they're just not at that point where that's going to be the most helpful. So it really is about listening to where people are at. And I've also learned to never underestimate the power of listening to people and their stories. One of the things we hear so much in our program, especially after that first um, assessment interview where we just listen mostly for that hour and a half is how many times people just don't feel heard. They don't feel like people really understand their pain. They don't feel like their situation has been understood. And so we can't underestimate the power of listening to someone's story. And there's often a healing process just in that listening. Um, and people just, that felt sense of connection or that felt sense of being hurt is really powerful. So once I get a sense for where people are at and what they really do want, um, then we have a lot of options, right? Sometimes people need to know what resources are available in the community or they need to know, sometimes they just need to know that they're already doing things that are helpful, but they need to maybe understand why it's helpful or how it's helpful. So. Um, those are things that we would do. Um, we would also maybe take a look and just see if people are recognizing or um, 
noticing if they need any counseling or making sense of past trauma. And that can be really important as well. Uh, and during this work, I use acceptance and commitment therapy for the most part with some somatic techniques, which are really designed to help the nervous system to move from what we call the protection response or the protective response and into the restorative response. Um, in our clinic, we talk a lot about shifting the nervous system and giving the body a break from being in protection mode all the time. I can go more into that uh, with the trauma piece or with the nervous system. And this isn't just for trauma. And we have to understand that traumas are all, they're so different for everybody, right? Some people experience kind of one big event and, you know, if they weren't able to process it or weren't able to kind of move through it in a really healthy way, it can get stuck in the nervous system or kind of stuck in how they make responses to life around them. Jennifer, I just want to interrupt you quickly because you're mentioning some really important things here. And just talking about the importance of trauma specifically and addressing that because you are doing a combination of somatic approaches. And for those who don't know, somatic literally means of or relating to the body. And there are a number of scholars in Canada. I'm thinking of people like Dr. Gabor Mate, who speak to that important link between trauma and pain. So before we get into kind of the specifics of this, because I do have questions about, you know, this protective mechanism that you're talking about, but I really, I want to know if you are a care provider, how can you get somebody to start safely addressing their trauma? Does that mean you're going to have to go to talk therapy to unpack some really horrible things that happened to you? Or, or are there kind of ways that you can address this link between pain and trauma without having to potentially re-traumatize yourself by speaking to this new strange person and revisiting those painful experiences. Yeah, let's unpack that a little. <laughs> let's see where we can go with that. I just put a whole bunch of questions on you, so, but <laughs> I trust you got this. So when we talk about trauma, it can be a big event, like I said, or it can be these mini smaller events, right? And it's just whether our nervous systems and our minds have been able to process them and to move through them or whether we've stopped it, right? It's embarrassing sometimes to do the things that our body needs to do after a trauma to let some of that energy out, right? Some of that um, cortisol or adrenaline that are pumped through our systems. And we don't want to shake or tremble afterwards. Or we don't want to cry in front of people. And there's a lot of things that we can stop ourselves from doing that would help us move through trauma. So again, it has to be just individual. We have to figure out where people are at. No, we don't always have to use talk therapy. And a lot of people that I meet with are like, I don't want to go there. And so we don't have to. We can do many other things with just working with the nervous system and getting people to just feel their body and notice what's happening inside of themselves just to get them paying attention to what their nervous system needs and what it wants to do. Um, so maybe I'll, I'll try and remember to give some examples later. Um, and come back to that. But what we talk about in our clinic is the protective response and the restorative response. So within our nervous system, we have kind of a gas system that we get revved up and ready to go. It's our protection system. We call it our protective system in our program, but other people call it some different names. Um, you know, it's the fight, fight, flee response, right? 
And we go into this protection response where our muscles are ready to fight or run. Um, our heart races, you know, blood is being sent to our large muscles instead of to our thinking part of our brain, all of those things. And on the other side of this system of the nervous system, we've got the restorative response. This is the braking system or the slow down system. It's what brings us into a state of relaxation. And we, we call it the restorative response. So we want to come into the restorative response when we're going to be eating because digestion works best when we are at rest. We want to come into this for sleeping so that we can have a restful sleep. Um, it's also really good for creativity and coming up with new ideas. It's really good for intimacy and being connected with other people. We want to be in that restoration response or restorative response. So that's how we talk about these things. Now, if the gas pedal is stuck on because of a past trauma, we can show the body what it's like to come into that restorative response and get unstuck. And that doesn't have to happen through talking. Sometimes, though, we'll recommend journaling. And journaling in a specific way, uh, it has to kind of come to a place where there's some resolve or, or an ability to move forward rather than just getting stuck in ruminating over the same thing over and over again. We want people to move out of it. And we can, you know, do, um, we can do talk therapy. We can do the journaling. But we can also just do the somatic techniques that we do. So with the somatic stuff, a lot of the time I focus on three things. There's breathing and just getting people to breathe. And I always start with an exhale. We are often holding on to a lot of air in our lungs already. And when we have people take in that first breath, but they're already full, it's hard to get more in. So I always like starting with an exhale and getting people to just exhale fully and then naturally let your breath come back in. I also try never to count things out for people in this section. There's a few other times where I will, but I want people to regulate their systems as comfortable as for them and for them to pay attention to that nervous system. So we start with breathing. A lot of times there's some really fun things we can do with breathing. Even noticing your breath going all the way to your toes and taking oxygen down to your toes. And as you exhale, imagine that it's just removing everything that shouldn't be there. And so some visualization we can bring into that. And then we do grounding because when we're grounded, we're safe. Think about jumping out of an airplane or falling off of a cliff. I mean, you're not grounded and you are terrified, right? <laughs> And there's so many times that we have our feet in the air or we're not even thinking about our feet. We're not even thinking past, you know, our chin in most cases, right? We're all caught up in our heads. And so I like doing the grounding because it gets us connected with the ground. It gets us connected with our seat or with the bed, whatever we can do it, standing, sitting, lying down. And it just sends a signal up to that fear response in the brain that we are connected and that we're safe. And that's a really good place to be when we're doing this work. And then the third one that I like to do is relaxation. And so oftentimes our bodies, especially in pain, um, are tight. We're protecting ourselves, especially with every movement or anything that we're having to do. And our body gets really used to that, but it works really hard. There's a lot of energy being expend, um, 
used in order to do that. So some of that relaxation is really important as well. And I do like to, it's a somatic based relaxation where you tense up those muscles to get your nervous system to get a sense of what that tension is and where that tension is. And then you slowly relax. And this is the one time I'll use counting to give people a sense of how long they should be doing this for. And so that's kind of the three things that I like to focus on if we're doing specific work on the nervous system and specific work with like that pain management. That was such an amazing and beautiful illustration of, you know, that real interconnection between our emotions, what's happening in our body, how trauma plays into this. And even as you were just talking through like the exhalation and the breathing exercises, I could feel myself literally getting more relaxed and like breathing along with you. So there's absolutely value, you know, just slowing down, learning to take that time and space when you need it, when your body is tense. You know, we think about things, even just like tension headaches, that's because we're all so wound up and tense and we just need to, you know, take five, take a break. And we are actually hoping to have someone come on um, in one of our episodes before the season ends to do some live breathing exercises with us so we can get more of that firsthand. But is there anything else you wanted to elaborate on there before we move on? I do. I want to jump in so bad. <laughs> so, all you. Like you said, right? Like you can just start to get a sense of that as we just even talk about it. I love doing this work with people because I start to think too about, oh, where am I at? And as I'm doing the breathing exercises with them, I always feel more relaxed at the end. And I get so many people saying, oh, yeah, I feel the headache is lessened. Oh, the pain is just changing, right? And we can do a lot of neat things too to follow that pain and to breathe into it a lot of times because there's so much tension in there. And so just giving it some breathing space um, often gives people that ability to change. And I also tell people that just because I do this with people all the time doesn't mean I remember to do it in my day-to-day life all the time. (laughs) We're all human and I totally get caught up in my life and forget to do these things. And so it's always a good reminder when I'm doing this work with people that I need to be doing this and practicing it myself because there are so many great benefits from it. Absolutely. And I think one of the key benefits of connecting with a therapist or a mental health professional is that idea of co-regulation. So that is meaning you're sitting there with somebody who maybe in this moment is a little more grounded than you are. And, you know, not, I'm not, I don't want to say your energy, but like literally your physio physiological mechanisms, they can co-regulate on each other. It's the same as if you go and sit and pet a dog or a cat for five minutes that brings down those stress levels. And sometimes you really just need someone there to guide you through it because it's not easy to remember to just take 10 to go sit in your bed and do those breathing exercises. So it's so great that there are people around that can help coach you through this and do it with you. And I feel like everybody's getting a benefit at the same time. But Jennifer, you have been in this area of treatment for a while now. So are there things that still surprise you when you are working with patients or healthcare providers? Are people sometimes still getting confused about why you as a social worker are there when, you know, we're just trying to treat or manage a a physiological thing? All the time. Yeah. (laughs) And I think this is one of the reasons that our clinic has really um, wanted to support that we all meet with people in that first appointment is because people... Even physiotherapy, you know, a lot of times people don't really understand what they can do to help people in movement. And so 
when we meet with people and we listen to those stories and then we can say, okay, well, this is what I can do to support you at this point in time. Then oftentimes there's that, I don't want to say buy-in, but that's, it's almost like they are like, oh, I get it now. Right. Like there's this, yeah, people don't understand until we are there and sharing in that. So a lot of times on the intake forms, people say, well, I have nothing or, you know, there's very little. And so we try and educate people and still at the end, there are people who just don't really want that support. And we're okay with that as long as we've given them all of the information and people can make those informed decisions for themselves. And so um, we have a lot of times though, we're at the end of that initial assessment. People do want to follow up and try these mind strategies and find, and they really do find some success in those things. Just to say too, though, I try and remind people that the mind piece of pain management and the movement pain, uh, movement piece of pain management, they need to be practiced regularly and we have to initiate them and do them pretty much the same as we do with medication, right? People don't question, you know, that they have to take their medication at a certain time for a certain amount of, right? And they're really dedicated to making sure that they follow through with that. The mind piece of it and the movement piece of it are the same. Like we need to prescribe these things as you need to do this, this many times a day, and you have to practice it regularly. Some studies show that it can take about eight weeks of daily mindfulness to really feel the full impact of that mind piece of of pain management. So realizing that there is work that has to be done here, it doesn't just happen once and you're done, right? Uh, It really has to be over and over again. And it's creating a new habit. And so practicing it and noticing what that feels like is really important. That is resonating with me because I'm kind of that uh, pain patient who I wait until I'm having a pain flare and then I go sit in my bed and do my meditation and my breathing exercises. And I just can't seem to figure out, well, why, why, why am I even having this pain flare? Because I wasn't putting in the work and practicing every day. So this is like a really good reinforcer to schedule in those kind of self-care activities, because in the long term, they're going to make you feel so much better. And your capacity is only just going to increase to be able to manage better if you are having an off day. So in terms of thinking about patients again, is there any general advice you would like to give to patients who are experiencing pain right now? Um, Your pain is telling you something. It is important to listen to it um, because so many times we don't and it gets worse. It starts off as a whisper and it ends as a yelling, crazy (laughs) something, right? Like it's just off the rails. And so it is really important to listen to yourself, to listen to your body. And a lot of times we're not really taught that. And our society doesn't really see that as an important thing. I mean, think about some of the sayings that we have in society, right? No pain, no gain, or push through the pain. I mean, these phrases leave us feeling like we have to ignore the body and we have to do everything we can to keep up with everything else or to do the things that we want to do. And so I think we need to shift that mindset about what is my body telling me in this pain? And what, if I notice it when it's whispering, then how can I care for myself in that moment so that later on it's not yelling at me? Um, So I would say if we could really just start listening, 
I think in any relationship that is key, right? In any relationship, that communication and with ourselves and with our body, it's no different. We have to start to listen and hear what's happening. For sure. Learning to tune in, listen, um, connect with our bodies. That's so important. And there's a lot of research that's coming out recently about how things like emotional repression are worsening some people's pain. Like there's a reason why if you go, you have a bad day, you go home and you cry for a while, guess what? You're going to feel better because that is the outlet and release that your body needed. Because if you're just going to keep storing it in there, it's going to come out again one way or another, whether you like it or not. But how about some words for healthcare providers working with those living with pain, given that you are taking, you know, the slightly different approach than just providing or prescribing, I guess, you're not doing physio, you're not giving out medications. Do you have anything to say to them just based on your own experience? So you're right. What you just said about like that emotional experience, if we just keep it in, it has to go somewhere. Like your emotions do create changes in your physiology. And so your brain is releasing all kinds of hormones and other things into the body when we have these emotional um, situations that come up. And if we don't deal with that, if we don't understand that, it gets trapped, right? And where does it go? It stays in the body and it kind of builds, right? So we have to do something about that. Um, And so this is a physiological thing, right? Our emotions are, and we have to recognize that. So I think as professionals, when we help people with their nervous system, with thoughts and feelings, with defining the things that matter to them, you know, the things that people value, a shift happens naturally within their body and their own awareness of how they can have that influence and impact on their body. You can almost even talk about, you know, we'll see some people come in with, uh, you know, with a locus of control, you know, that's external, right? That everything happens to me. And so when we have somebody who really thinks that everything happens to them and there's not a lot that they can influence, they're going to really struggle with a lot of things in life, including pain. But for people who have that internal locus of control, so yeah, everything around me is happening, but I have something that I can do about that. I can respond in a way that matters to me. I can give I can do this in a response to what's happening in a healthy, strong way. And I think sometimes it's healthcare providers helping people to see what that personal responsibility is. So what do you have control over in this moment? And what can you do to take the next step? And that just helps people to feel like they're capable of doing this kind of work and that they have a responsibility, that it's not all up to the healthcare providers to do the work for them. And so that can take a lot of work, though, because it's not an easy overnight or one time kind of fix, right? It's, it's really just talking to people about how we can do that and how people can influence um, their body. We also know like finance and career is impacted by pain. Family relationships are impacted by pain, a spirituality or intimacy. And so if we can address the thing that's kind of the most important to somebody, um, that can just alleviate a lot of stress and just bring a lot of calm to someone's situation. And so even if it's just, you know, listening to that and just saying, okay, is there something that you want to do about this? Is there a next step that you can take to help resolve this? Um, 
that can be really helpful. But ultimately, um, we can only show people what's possible. It really has to be up to them to take the next step. And their next step may not be what we would like to do or what we would like them to do, but it really is just every visit with them is just moving them closer to them being able to make these decisions or then moving towards a healthier um, way of living and um, that we can only kind of step in as much as they want us to and we can give them all the information and at the end of the day they're going to go and make their own choices and make their own uh, lifestyle you know decisions and we have to respect that as well you bet and this is going to resonate with a lot of our listeners, I think, because that description you're giving where, you know, when you're a pain patient and you're starting to get desperate because your quality of life is so poor, you just want to go to a health professional and say, do whatever surgery, give me whatever medication, just tell me whatever to do so that I can feel better. But it is so much more complicated than that. So when you can find healthcare providers who are willing to give you that sense of autonomy and let you have ownership over your care plan, that's when really important changes start to happen. So that's just so great to hear that perspective being reinforced. And that's really what I'm learning today, the value of what that social work background really does. So I love hearing everything that you're saying, but we are just about here at the end. So is there anything else you would like to mention today that we haven't discussed so far? So many things. <laughs> There's so many things I still want to say, <laughs> but I don't want to do too much here. Um, there's probably four more things I'd like to say, but I'll try and just touch on them briefly. Um, in my own experience and in my own healthcare experience, just recognizing the importance of nutrition and holistic care. Um, I think this is something that is completely under-recognized in pain management, and we have to start paying attention to this. Um, we don't put diesel into a gas car, and sometimes I joke with my husband about putting regular gas into his premium-only vehicle. He doesn't think it's as funny as I do, but um, <laughs> I think he's come to the point now that he's like, yeah, I know you're not telling me the truth. <laughs> okay. So we have to pay attention. Like this is important. What we put into our bodies is so important. And, you know, there's many wonderful herbs and plants that can really have an impact over our overall health. And this is hard because we have such an access to all kinds of food and all kinds of really good tasting food. And I think it's hard to make choices that are you know, going to be better for our body long-term, right? It's, it's so much easier just to make that sweet choice in the, in the moment. And I'm not saying never to have those, but I think we have to pay more attention to nutrition. And so I think even finding a good nutritionist who really understands that holistic health and is willing to work with all aspects of the healthcare system is really important. We did touch on trauma as well. And that's the second piece. It is so rare that I don't hear of a story of trauma from people who are in chronic pain. We just want to recognize that, that there is a connection there and that we want to honor that in people, that their story and their history is a part of who they are at this point in time. And so just being aware of that and knowing that there is that connection between the mind and body and that there are things that we can start to do to heal. And we, I think we gave some great examples earlier just that we, that's one thing that we just need to pay attention to. And working on trauma can be scary 
uh, especially when you've held it for so long. But anytime you're working with someone, it really should be done with care and with time and where there's that release of fear that you're feeling that safety in those moments. Third is that there is a, the importance of other types of therapies. So this would be physiotherapy, massage therapy, chiropractor, many others. I didn't even come close to listing them all, but the difficulty that people have with this is they're not covered with, um, with our general health care. And so it can be really hard to get access to these people because they're often requiring you to pay for these services. And if you have the healthcare plans, that's great and we can use them. But I think that these are critical areas that we underutilize in our pain management. And that goes for nutritionists as well, right? For the people who can influence our, you know, nutrition. And so we, I really want to encourage people to start advocating for these services and let your MLAs know that these are important areas of pain management and that we need further funding for them. I think that's just a huge area. And if we don't let them know that these are important things, um, you know, they're, they're not going to know that we need to do anything about it. So if you can and you want to just send a letter off to whoever it is you think needs to have it. And the fourth one, I'm going to add a fourth one here, is um, gentle movement and mindful movement. So whether it's standing up from your chair or whether it's walking across the room or whether it's picking something up off the floor or doing the exercises from your physiotherapist, doing all of those movements mindfully and paying attention to how your body is moving and what feels comfortable and where the twinges are that don't feel comfortable and all of those things. And that's part of that listening to the body that I talked about earlier. Um, giving your body that space to be able to move. And I guess this is something too um, that I talk to people about sometimes is building that trust relationship with your body, right? Does your body trust that you, your brain is going to actually protect it? or you know, does your brain trust that your body is going to do the things that it needs to do or that you want it to do? And we can only develop that by listening to it and doing these gentle movements and mindful movements in everything that we do. I guess I'm trying to get as much in as possible. <laughs> no, that's amazing. I wish we had more time because I want to dig into so many of these important points. And one of the ones I really love that you brought up, uh, being a patient advocate myself and someone who is quite political hearing you say, you know, call your local representative and ask them to prioritize these things that are so essential for pain management. There are funding cuts happening all the time. Um, like in our province, I think most recently, Botox injections for pelvic pain was recently cut and we need to use our voices and let those in charge of services and access and funding know that that is not acceptable because there are so many options for people to manage their pain, but we need to have access to them. And I believe the chronic pain. Ooh, I'm going to put this in the show notes before I misquote myself. There are actually letters that are pre-made templates that you can send to your local MLAs that you sign that are already graphed out for you. So I'm going to make sure we put a link to those so that if anybody is interested in this, we can get them to you, but also returning to that trauma piece. Once again, 
Um, as Jennifer already mentioned earlier, if you aren't ready to talk about your past traumatic experiences, you don't have to, but there are therapists who work on somatic levels who can help you if you aren't ready to dive into some of those painful experiences. And again, that gentle movement piece, starting something simply like a daily yoga practice is super beneficial, which we've learned about in last episodes. These are all good things that can help improve your chronic pain all around. But since we are at the end here, and this is a Saskatchewan-based podcast, as always, Jennifer, would you be willing to tell us what one of your favorite things about living in Saskatchewan is or a favorite place you love in the province? <laughs> Just one. Um, <laughs> I think I wrote, I think I thought about a lot more than one. Anyway. You can give us more. We we like all the Saskatchewan love we can get. Don't worry about that. We live in a small town and our back window faces a field. And so currently there's a canola field growing. And since my girls were little, they've always called it the cannoli field. I don't know why, but so we just love that we have this incredible view and just this open space to look onto and we can watch the sunrise and the sunsets. And at this time of year, if I happen to be awake at night, you can still see the sun on the or the light along the horizon where you know the sun doesn't almost you know it lives on all night in at this time of year. So. And then we just love making connections and realizing how many people, you know, uh, we know through just talking and connecting and realizing how many connections there are in these small communities. So that's what I love about where we live. That's wonderful. That is a great plug for Saskatchewan. So Jennifer, again, thank you so much for joining us today on Your Partners in Pain. I learned so much. I know that all of our listeners will have all this new amazing swell of information. So I'm really excited to share some of the resources that you've shared with us today. And hopefully if we have a season two, maybe we can have you back on again, because I know you have lots to say, and it's been really great to speak to you. Great. Thanks so much. As we discussed during the episode, I have included a number of items in the show notes, such as book recommendations, how to get in touch with Jennifer directly through her private practice, and how to self-refer to the MAC IOPS or Chronic Pain Clinic at USASC in Saskatoon. Further, if you are interested in sending a note to your local representative to speak to them about the importance of advocating for change in the context of pain care, funding and service access, we invite you to visit the paincanada.ca website. Here you will find under resources, if you go to the prioritize pain tab, there is an advocacy letter tool that you can download, which provides a template of a letter for individuals to sign, which you can then send into your local member of parliament, urging them to help prioritize pain. These letters are provided as a part of the action plan for pain in Canada, where recommendations are being given for leadership to help improve pain care, research, and care access. We only have a few episodes left before the end of season one, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you for listening to Your Partners in Pain, a podcast for people experiencing pain and those who help individuals living with pain. Funding for this podcast was provided by the Saskatchewan Community Initiatives Fund, and the Saskatchewan Pain Society. For more information about our organization or to find additional resources, please find us on social media at SaskPain or visit our official website, www.saskpain.ca.